you have an opportunity to observe and then think really critically about what you see. I think a lot of people are in a hurry to be the decision maker, to wear the crown and say, you know, no, we should be doing it X, Y, or Z way. Uh, that's not your role as a volunteer, whether you're volunteering in the equipment room, in the recruiting office, working ops, or as a coaching assistant. Um, your job is to help support the mission and the vision of the people that are above you. But that doesn't mean that you have to do it blindly. And so I would encourage people to get a notebook, keep it in a safe place, and write down everything that you love about what you see and every little way um, that you would do it differently when you're the person that's in charge. And that may change. That may change in six months or it might change tomorrow. Um, but when you make an observation, you know, don't just let that be some sort of, you know, blowing off steam at the water cooler. Why are we doing it this way or that way? I think it's important that you take that with you so that when you are in a future position, you're better prepared to make those decisions. Welcome to Up Close In Personnel with Alex Brown. I'm your host, Alex Brown. Whether you're a returning listener or first-timer, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on this week's conversation. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button, rate, review, and share the show. Joining us this week on the show is one of the very first people that I met in the coaching industry and someone who's grown into being just a true friend of mine over the years, and that is Brian Metz, tight ends coach for Ohio University. Climbing the ranks from around the same time together, we go back to his days as a student manager for Notre Dame, the five years of interning that led up to his first paid opportunity as a GA, and the lessons he's learned along his journey to being a full-time position coach. Someone who's really grateful for opportunities, he's super competitive with himself and others, and we discuss his approach to networking, career growth, and his recruiting process. It's easy to see why Brian is where he is. He's passionate about having a beginner's or growth mindset and takes pride in what he calls being a master observer. Thank you again for tuning into the show. And with that, I'll turn it over to my conversation with Brian Metz. Just hit a button, Morty, give me a beat. Oh man, okay, all right. Um. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. It's been fun since starting the the show, talking with you. It feels like almost every other week, uh, you, you give me the best feedback week in and week out. So I appreciate that. I kind of want to start at a different point. You know, you started out at Notre Dame and I couldn't help but when I read your bio, um, you graduated Notre Dame in th 2013 but you started your coaching career in 2012. Did you leave the program before the BCS championship game? <laughs> I did. Oh, I did. man. <laughs> that must have been the difference between, uh, you know, beating Alabama and not. Um, <laughs> no, I, I can't say I had that much impact. Um, but yeah, I did. I, my senior year at Notre Dame, I took a class in coaching. It was a certificate program offered at the university. 
and they paired you up with a local school in the sport that you were interested in coaching. And at that time, um, I knew I wanted to work in sports. I really wasn't sure what capacity that was going to be in. Um, my dad coached every youth sport um, that I ever played, um, every youth sport my brother ever played. And um, I had great experiences playing a lot of different sports, including football growing up. And so I knew I wanted to be close to the athletes and I knew I wanted to be a part of their um, development. And so I took the opportunity through that course, um, was paired up at St. Joe High School in South Bend um, and had the chance to, to be a high school coach during my senior year at Notre Dame. So I was a student manager for two years, my sophomore and my junior year. I worked with quarterbacks. I did all the things that a normal equipment manager would do at, at Notre Dame. The, the program's taken very seriously, the football program and the equipment program. Um, so everything from snapping the ball to doing the laundry um, and really saw a behind the scenes look at a program that's the elite of the elite and how they run. Um, but then also had a chance to get my hands dirty and my feet wet coaching high school ball while I was still in college. What led to, to choosing Notre Dame? Cause obviously you're, you're from Knoxville, like you could have gone to Tennessee, but, um, what, what took you to that path? Um, you know, you know, my dad actually, um, he encouraged me to take a visit there. Um, we did not grow up Notre Dame fans. Like a lot of people do We're Catholic. I went to a Catholic high school. Um, and I was really, when I was coming out of high school, I loved reading. I loved writing. I loved sports. I thought maybe I'd be a sports journalist, um, which is maybe why I take such interest in, you know, your podcast and devouring, um, all sorts of sports podcasts, um, and so I wanted to go to Northwestern. Um, it's funny, actually, my little brother now goes to Northwestern, um, but he wanted to go elsewhere. So anyway, I, I wanted to go to Northwestern. My dad said, hey, you know, that's great. If we're going to take the drive up there about eight hours from Knoxville to Chicago, let's go to Notre Dame also and check it out. And I think like a lot of people who go through the recruiting process, you don't always have a full understanding of what the school has to offer until you step foot on campus. And for me and my personality and what I was looking for, I wanted a campus feel. I wanted the small community. I went to a small high school, both Northwestern and Notre Dame offer, um, you know, have a small enrollment, but Northwestern's in Evanston. It's very close to Chicago. It was too urban for me. There was too much going on. Um, it felt busy and it, it didn't fit my personality. And I stepped foot on campus in Notre Dame. It felt like I was on a, you know, at a park, um, the grass was green. The sun was shining. It was in February. Um, and so, you know, there weren't too many days like that in future Februarys when I was enrolled there. Um, but it was special. I, I felt like it felt like home when I stepped on campus. Um, and so that was a big reason why I pivoted. I was a junior in high school. And I, you know, ever, ever since that moment, I, I had my sights set on, on Notre Dame. That's such a good point about, you know, you, you don't know until you step foot on a campus and obviously we didn't get that this year. Um, you know, you're, you're in your first full-time role at Ohio and we'll kind of get into your kind of backstory and, and the journey that you took. I, I know that's something that we both want to talk about, but how, how much fun was it uh, starting out as a full-time coach uh, recruiting during a pandemic? I had a blast. <laughs> I think, you know, some people like my wife and my, my parents, people that I'm close to, 
apologized to me and said, Hey, I feel so bad for you. Uh, you know, your first season cut short, you know, you had games canceled and you didn't get to go out on the road recruiting. And it was different for me. I don't really know a whole lot different. Um, this being my first season in this role. So I'm just, I feel really lucky that we did have the season that we did have, that we were able to go through the pandemic and play in the capacity that we did. And, you know, as far as recruiting during this, I think it's played to my advantage as a younger coach who feels more comfortable um, with some technology, whether it's FaceTime or Zoom calls or texting, DMing. Um, I've found that I'm ending up, you know, helping facilitate the other coaches on staff and, you know, helping get them up to speed. And, you know, ultimately the role of a, of a recruiting coach, whether it's the position coach or the area coach is to meet players where they are, meet coaches where they are and, 365 days out of the year, you know, they're not on your campus um, in a pandemic and, and 364 days or 360 days in a normal year, they're not on your campus. So, you know, I, I had to do a good job this year of making sure I'm in close contact with the players that we're recruiting, um, maybe in a different way than normal, but, you know, it was a good challenge. And you've had a chance to, to work with, you've been at Memphis, you've been at UNLV, Ohio, Obviously, you're at, you at Notre Dame when Brian Kelly's there and, you know, a bunch of big time recruiters. And who are some guys that you've learned from the most as far as kind of developing that voice? Because I, I know it's, it's one thing to be able to connect and relate to people, but there's a skill to it. There's there's definitely, you know, some technical aspects of guiding guiding a kid along through the process and, and understanding your role as the recruiter. Who are some guys you've learned from? My biggest mentor, both in coaching and recruiting, is Tim Albin. Um, Tim's our offensive coordinator here. He's been here 16 years. He's a phenomenal coach, phenomenal person. He gave me my first opportunity to be an intern here. He hired me to be the graduate assistant working with receivers here. And he brought me back here after my year at UNLV to coach the tight ends. And the thing that Coach Albin talks about is providing the blueprint for the players that we're recruiting. So we have a lot to offer at Ohio University, just like you do at Rice. And so we want to know what's valuable to the recruit. We want to ask the right questions to find out who they're going to consult in their decision-making. We want to find out what are going to be the key factors in their decision on where they're going to go to school. And then we want to make the presentation and show them the blueprint of what it would look like to be an athlete and be a student at Ohio University. And so Coach Alvin talks about, we are creating the blueprint. Every student athlete is different. What brings them to Ohio University may be different. There are a lot of the same things um, that are in common. You know, people wanna win, they wanna be a part of a family. They wanna love their coaches and their teammates. They wanna compete for championships. Um, But if we find out that the most important thing to a student athlete is the family feel, well, then we're going to, we're going to make sure our blueprint is, you know, on a foundation of the family feel. And so we recruit nationally, we recruit kids from the state of Ohio, um, but coach Alvin, his main recruiting territories are outside of the state. And so a lot of times he's in communication with kids from all different backgrounds all different high school programs, all different family situations. And you know, what he does is he's a great listener. And then he ultimately finds out what's valuable to the student athlete and 
makes a presentation and shows them the blueprint of what it would look like for them to be an Ohio Bobcat. So some kids are a little more savvy in the process than others. And they've seen guys go through the process or maybe they're, you know, a sophomore and they had, you know, a five-star or four-star that went through it, had a bunch of interviews and people coming through, you know, Hey, what are you looking for in a school? Well, I'm looking for this type of system and I want to play for this type of coach and I want to go to this type of school. But oftentimes I feel like when you come across kids early in the process and ideally you want to be the first team in the boat. I know it's something that you guys take a lot of pride in. We take a lot of pride in um, to build that relationship early. A lot of times these kids don't have it concrete or solidified in their mind as far as like, okay, what are my five things? You know, what are my five important factors? So how do you come up with the blueprint when the kid doesn't necessarily know what he wants? He may like have some things that he wants or leans towards, but how do you extract that when you're, when you're talking to a kid? I think there's two things that you just hit on that are really important. Um, the first one is we've talked about it before. You talked about hunting with a rifle and not a shotgun. Um, so being very specific, you know, what that means is we're very specific about the type of person that we recruit and the type of athlete that we recruit. There are programs at our level that, um, they shoot with a, a much wider net, so to speak. They're trying to offer dozens and dozens of kids at each position in the hopes that they'll land one or two to help elevate their program. With the longevity of success that Coach Solich has had here and Coach Albin has had here, and you know, we've got three full-time coaches who are alums, three GAs, four support staff members who are alums, we know what we're looking for. And so that helps us make sure that we are recruiting the right type of kid from the beginning so that we're not recruiting kids who, you know, the most important thing is the color of the Jersey and, you know, how big the jumbotron is. Um, that's not how we win recruits. We could create a blueprint uh, surrounding that, but that's not a, you know, that's not a way for us to, to sustain success as a program. And so as far as helping young people understand what's valuable or what could be valuable, we know what our go-to plan is. We've got great academic programs in education, in sports management, in engineering. So we know what our top programs are. We know what our top selling points are as a program. We have the winningest head coach in uh, Mac in, in the conference history. We've got position coaches that have been here for 10 plus years. We're consistently um, competing for Mac championships. We've got a family feel, a strong culture, and we know what that is. And so if a young person doesn't know what things are, are valuable to them, then we can present those things that you know, time after time we've seen have drawn kids to the program, have drawn the right type of kids to the program. You know, we, we've got a great culture on campus. It's a fun campus. It's great campus life, but we don't necessarily lead with, hey, we've got you know, 20 bars right across the street from campus. That's not a winning formula. So we know what has won in the past and we present those things. It's like educating, you know, you, you got to just put it out there, you know, see how they respond to it. I think that's a great point about um, Coach Albin. You, you have to be a great listener um, because a lot of times they're not going to say it exactly, but they'll give you enough hints. Um, I, I really want to take a, a couple of steps back 
2015 AFCA. I have a, a, a really close friend that I went to church with, played basketball with. And at the time, I was trying to make the transition from the media world, was covering the draft. This is when I was trying to make my jump into college football. And he was like, hey, I got a buddy who's got a buddy that works for Ohio. Uh, you mind if I get you in touch with them? And I'm like, sure, why not? And sure enough, like you respond to my email. Um, we met up. Uh, it might have been the first day of the convention or the second day. You were in the process of getting on at Memphis. And I had no idea kind of your transition, but you went out of your way to set me up with an interview with, with Michael George another listener of the show, but talk me through kind of where your mind was at that AFCA. Cause I know you wrote about it and it was kind of one of those, you know, wherever the roads take me uh, was like the, the send off line, but yeah, take us back to that, that moment. Well, I appreciate you bringing it all the way back to 2015. We could have gone earlier than that, but during 2014 and 2015 and even up through now, I felt like, I am still trying to get my footing in the industry. And for you to say I was working for Ohio University at the time is very generous. I was working for free, um, which I think a lot of people can relate to in the industry. Um, and so I, I learned the lesson pretty early on that networking is very, very valuable. Um, but networking, you know, it's important not just to network up I think a lot of people think of networking is, hey, I want to reach up and I want to talk to the CEO. I want to talk to the head coach. I want to meet this guy that's got, you know, a suit or, uh, you know, is standing at the bar at the AFCA and he's the head coach at so-and-so. And I think it's really important that young coaches, people that are trying to make it in the industry, um, recognize that networking is also networking out. And so, I plan on being in the industry for a long time, 30 or 40 years or however long I'm lucky enough to coach. And I think it's important to meet people, to learn from people who are at the same level as you, so to speak, and are also trying to get their footing. And so, you know, I've never, I've never been too cool for somebody. I hope I never am. Um, but I recognize that I've got to, I have to have a beginner's mindset. I did then, I still have to have one. Um, we, could, we could talk about any number of things, um, but I didn't play college football. Um, I volunteered for five years before I got my first paid GA job. Um, you know, I've done other people's laundry. I've done any number of things in order to break in, um, so to speak. And you know, I, I recognize that there's a lot that I don't know. I wasn't born on third base in the industry. Um, you know, my dad's a great guy, but he's not the DC at some power five school. Um, so I recognize there's a lot I don't know. And there's a lot of people I don't know. And I can learn something from anyone if I try to. And, you know, it's important to help people out in this industry. So the AFCA convention is a great place to, to network, to meet people, to meet friends of friends of friends. And if that turns into a lifelong relationship, that's incredibly positive. Or if there's just one nugget you take away from somebody, that's really positive too. Um, so, so yeah, I was, I was, um, you know, I always say um, when I reference you, Alex, I, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm, I listen to 
Alex Brown's podcast, you know, uh, how do you know him again? Oh, well, you know, I was in the room when uh, Michael George interviewed him and I was folding recruiting mailers in 2014, you know, when he interviewed for so-and-so's job or, you know, whatever. So, you know, we've come a long way. I think you've come a long way. And, um, you know, I think it's important to develop quality relationships with great people that make you think that you can learn with and learn from. And um, you're definitely one of those people. Where did you pick up the beginner's mindset? I know you read a ton. You talked about it earlier, but you're big into Ryan Holiday, Daily Stoics, you know, just in terms of all the kind of nuggets as far as controlling what you can control and, and kind of being where your feet are. But the beginner's mindset, where, where did you pick that up and really kind of lean into that? I think I've always been acutely aware that there's a lot that I don't know. And, you know, early on in my academic curiosity, it started with growth mindset and recognizing that as a young person in sports and in school, I was praised a lot of times for the result when it was positive um, and about how smart I was or about how fast I was or about how skilled I was. And I recognized that actually a lot of what I was able to accomplish in football, in sports, in school was because I was really diligent. Um, I always did my homework. I always turned it in on time. I always showed up for practice. I always was focused at practice. And so it was, it was sort of a reflection early on. I mean, this would have been early on in my coaching career, early on in, in my adulthood where I kind of recognized, you know what, the things that I've had success doing were a direct result of my effort and, you know, reading books, you know, you, you read the notes at the end of a book or, or, you know, there's a page where the author references something. I write that down. I let that one book turn into the next one. Um, I share a podcast with somebody and they say, Oh, that's great. Have you listened to this one? And I might listen to an episode of it. And if I, I dig into it, um, you know, I might download the last 20 with guests that I really like or um, want to learn more about. And so I've just sort of let things snowball, I guess. But it all starts with a recognition, whether you want to say it's healthy or unhealthy, a recognition that I'm not fully prepared yet for the opportunities that I want and the opportunities that I have right now. I'll say I'm currently the tight ends coach at Ohio University. I was hired to coach tight ends never having played or never having coached tight ends. Obviously, this is a safe environment. I've got great coaches that I work for that have taken it upon themselves to train me. And I've got great players that listen. And this is a, this is a safe environment to fail. Um, and I have a lot. I've taught the wrong technique and turned around and had to correct it the next day. But I say this to say, I am very aware of what I don't know. And I'm in a hurry to find out what I don't know. And so whether that's a podcast, whether that's a book, whether that's a conversation, um, whether that's a thought about a thought or whatever, um, you know, I just like to explore. 
Um, and it starts with knowing that there's a lot I don't know. Before my follow-up question, are you one of those guys that listens to podcasts like 1.5x or 2, 2x? One and a half times. Oh, yeah. I can't do it, man. <laughs> oh, I can't do it. No, uh, well, I think it's part our, of our, our quarterback, our, our quarterback analyst. He listens to it like two times. And so I'll walk into the, the, he's always the first one in the office. He's there at like 530 in the morning. It's ridiculous. And he'll be in there finishing up a workout and it's like just rambling on. I'm like, I can't, I can't follow it. It's funny when I actually turn podcasts down to one speed, it sounds like people are talking in slow motion. Uh, um, yeah. One and a half. That's the sweet spot. Okay. So I think the fact that Coach Solich hired you without any experience at the position speaks to the work that you put in as an unpaid intern, as a volunteer. Uh, I didn't realize how many years you had spent, you know, not being paid before that GA spot. What were some of the things that you focused on and feel like you accomplished when you were kind of working your way up the ladder and, and really kind of cutting your teeth at Ohio? Uh, what are some things that you could leave with, you know, people that listen to the show that are, you know, a recruiting assistant that's unpaid or a, or a coaching intern that's unpaid while, you know, undergrad. First thing is thank the people that are helping you do the thing unpaid. I recognize that I'm very privileged to have parents that help pay my rent while I volunteered before I got married and had a wife who helped pay my rent. Um, and so that's the first thing is just have some gratitude for that. Um, and I recognize that not everyone has that opportunity. Um, I also drove Lyft while I volunteered. You know, I did those types yes. of things. So, <laughs> um, so I wasn't just all taking handouts. But, you know, I think volunteering, you have an opportunity to observe and then think really critically about what you see. I think a lot of people are in a hurry to be the decision maker to wear the crown and say, you know, no, we should be doing it X, Y, or Z way. Uh, that's not your role as a volunteer, whether you're volunteering in the equipment room, in the recruiting office, working ops, or as a coaching assistant, um, your job is to help support the mission and the vision of the people that are above you. But that doesn't mean that you have to do it blindly. And so I would encourage people to get a notebook keep it in a safe place and write down everything that you love about what you see and every little way um, that you would do it differently when you're the person that's in charge. And that may change. That may change in six months or it might change tomorrow. Um, but when you make an observation, you know, don't just let that be some sort of, you know, blowing off steam at the water cooler. Why are we doing it this way or that way? I think it's important that you, Take that with you so that when you are in a future position, you're better prepared to make those decisions. So I looked at being a volunteer as, as being a master observer. I wanted to be a fly on the wall. I was really, really, really lucky to get the job um, with Memphis football. The DFO at Memphis, his name was Jeff Cupper. He's now at Florida State. Um, Jeff is an Ohio alum. I met him through a friend of a friend. He took an interest in me. We had a couple conversations and he invited me down to work a camp. I worked a camp and 
caught the eye enough of the coaching staff that they trusted me to, you know, welcome me into their program for a year. Um, I actually worked for Holman Wiggins, who's the receivers coach now at Alabama. Um, he was the receivers coach at Memphis. Um, how fortunate was I to have the chance to not just work for Coach Fuente, but also be around a lot of great other young coaches who have gone on to do other things. Um, but we're all together in that place, a really special year. Um, and I filled up a notebook just from one year. And, and when it was my turn to get the coffee, I did that. Or when it was my turn to make copies, I did that. And I did it to the best of my ability, just like I talked about with, you know, academics, doing things diligently or, you know, doing things with a smile on your face. But, you know, ultimately I took it as this is my chance, a, a behind the scenes look at, at an elite program um, or maybe even a failing program, you know, but wherever you're lucky enough to be to take notes and say, hey, this is what it's like when the team's 0-2, you know, this is what you should say to the team. You know, this is when, when we're playing our rival, you know, I think we should say this, um, or I think we should emphasize this. I think that's important. But internalizing that until it's, it's your opportunity. Correct. Yeah. Yes. That's a, that's an important uh, distinction. Yeah. Yes. When the unpaid interns like, Hey coach, this is what we should say before we face Alabama today. So, okay. You, kind of big on, on lists and, and doing your homework and, you know, putting everything on paper and you're a preparer. Um, I can tell, all, I, I know you, but, you know, just hearing you talk through your process, I, I know that you put a lot of, you know, a lot of work into approaching an event or an opportunity or a meeting or whatever, what have you, what are some do's and don'ts for the convention? Because uh, you got the virtual one that'll, that'll come up at some point this month. Um, it's not the same, but obviously there's a lot of phone calls and there's a lot of, you know, rubbing virtual shoulders with people, but like, we've all been there. The guy that has all of his resumes printed out and he's shaking everybody's hand and you're really not moving the needle. How do you, how do you go in with the right mindset and game plan to have a, what's a, what's a successful AFCA convention, uh, in coach Metz's eyes. I think that changes based off of what you're trying to get out of the convention. So with anything, I think it's important to begin with the end in mind. If your goal is to get a job, then you should prepare. You should bring 30 copies of your resume on hard stock or on card stock. Um, if you're trying to meet as many people as possible, then be ready to stand in the lobby and shake as many hands as possible. For a virtual convention, Make sure your uh, mic is off. <laughs> um, no, but for, for an in-person convention, which I find a lot of value in, and I always have, I typically stratify the people that I want to make sure that I meet. So what that means for me is I might have 40 or 50 people that I either know really well from, a, from working together previously or having a close relationship. Maybe people who... Um, have been mentors to me, whether they're still coaching or not coaching or, or what have you. I've got those top level people that I need to make sure that I see. And that might only be five or six people. And I'm going to text them or call them on the day that I land. And I'm going to make sure they know that I'm there and that they are a priority for me. And, in, <laughs> and if I'm shaking hands with 
with somebody else, when they give me a call and say they're available, I'm going to go make myself available. For example, last year, um, I was a graduate assistant at UNLV. I got that opportunity through Coach Albin, who knew the offensive coordinator there, Barney Cotton. That's how I got there. The staff was let go, myself included. And I was looking for a job. And I said, the number one person that I need to see is Frank Solich. Well, Frank Solich was ending his one-year um, service as the AFCA president. So it was like trying to get a meeting with the prime minister. Um, but I made it a point to call him every day. And when he was available, I, I was available. You know, I actually left a lunch with a couple friends that I see all the time um, to go make sure that I, I saw Coach Solich. And this was actually before they even had a tight ends job open. But he is a, you know, a level guy for me. And then after that, I've got the next list. Hey, who are the people that I've met a couple times or, you know, they seem to be at a school that I'd really like to visit um, and clinic at or work a camp at, or, you know, I, I really hit it off with that guy last year. He's a friend of a friend. I want to make sure I see him. Well, I might, I might wait till day two of the convention to send that person a message and so on and so on. So, you know, I, I got my notebook. I make sure I have it cross, you know, cross off the people when I see them. I make sure I, I write a little square next to it so that I can write my follow-up thank you note or a great to see you note afterward and make sure I'm, I'm having proper follow-up. But, you know, for me, I approach the convention like this is, it's a great opportunity to get 10,000 coaches who all love football, love the kids, want to grow themselves, want to help young people grow, get them all together in the same city. And, you know, for me, it's a chance to meet people like we talked about who can be mentors or network up and then also develop that young coaches network of the people that I hope to be in the industry with for a long time. Yeah. It's, it's like almost three levels. It's like down across and up, you know, like your people that are colleagues, people that are mentors and people that you can mentor. Um, Cause a, a lot of times like with, with our interns and, and analysts, like I'll be maybe teaching them something or working with them on something and they'll come up with an idea that it's like, I haven't thought of it that way, you know? And, and I think just constantly having people in your circle um, and it's not 30 or 40 because then, you know, it just gets convoluted, but like people that you really connect with and, and really, you know, have a relationship with it. Like I gain a lot from our conversations. I gain a lot from some of these people that, you know, you come across in the industry, you know, you have an opportunity to really kind of invest in those people if you choose to. And, and I'm with, totally with you on that. So you talked about coach Solich and, you know, he's, he's one of the, win he's the fourth winningest coach active in FBS right now. He's been at Ohio forever. He's only had like two losing seasons. What separates the recruiting process as far as finding the right kinds of guys. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about building a program, everybody talks about the culture and, and, and those sorts of things. But, um, you know, we, we've talked at length, you and I, about the, the rifle shotgun mentality. But at the, at the microscopic level, when you're talking about a kid's character, what are the things that are important to you as far as the types of people that you're bringing into the program? We know what we're looking for because we've had success here. Coach Olch has been here 16 years. 
we know the type of young person that succeeds in our program and the type that doesn't. Our program, we've, we have a rise up culture. Okay, and that's a nice term, but it's also an acronym. It is the core values that we hold. So that's respect, integrity, service, effort, unity, and perseverance. That was developed by Coach Solich with the Unity Council about 10 years ago, and we haven't changed in a good way. Um, we've maintained that standard. That's what we look for. We look for key indicators of those things in our recruitment. So there are plenty of examples, anecdotal evidence that somebody exhibits those characteristics. Um, and everybody's background is different, whether they come from a one-parent home or they come from a two-parent home or they've got two parents who work outside of the house or one that does and one that doesn't, whether they come from a great high school program, whether they've struggled early in their high school career and have overcome adversity. Um, so just like as a coach, you try to catch people doing the right thing and try to praise that when we're developing relationships with prospects, um, we look for those key indicators. And I think this is connected to the shotgun rifle mentality is that we don't lead with the offer. You know, we don't watch film and say that kid gets an offer. We watch the film the film indicates that that player has the opportunity or has the potential rather to be a player at Ohio university. And then we call the high school head coach and then we talk to the prospect. And so we gather information and it's not like our first conversation with the prospect we're offering, you know, I want to get on the phone with him and I want to talk with him. I want to find out, does he love football? Not just do you love football, but I want to ask those questions. You know, I want to find out what football means to him, what school means to him, why he plays, all of those things. And there are right answers and wrong answers. And so as you get to know people and develop those relationships, you know, I may have phone conversations with dozens of prospects at a certain position in a certain recruiting year. But ultimately, I'm trying to gather information and whittle it down based off of our core characteristics Everybody that I'm talking to on the phone, they can play college football. You know, they're good enough. There's not a question of that. Then I get to know them and, hey, do they respond to my calls? You know, do they respond to my DMs? Do they do it in a, a manner that's, you know, respectful and professional to their, you know, obviously based off of their age? Um, you know, are they doing those things? That, how do they speak to their mother? How do they speak to their high school coach? All those things are important. And so... We talked about being an, an observer, um, whether you're in a volunteer position or you're a full-time position coach, I'm trying to make observations based off of the things that I see to project whether or not that person would fit into our locker room. Um, we take pride in our locker room. We talk about how we don't have locks on our lockers. You know, now we do have the little key codes, but you know, the, the idea is that we, we don't need to hide our wallets from our teammates. You know, we don't have a problem with that. Guys like that, they don't make it here. Um, you know, we, you don't go bowl eligible for 12 straight years, like you indicated, Coach Solich's success. He's the winningest coach in MAC history. He's the fourth all-time winningest active head coach. You don't get there by, 
you know, changing with the seasons. He knows what he's looking for. He's steady in his leadership. We know what we're looking for as far as what we're recruiting. That doesn't change. Scheme doesn't change every other week. Um, our identity doesn't change. Our culture doesn't change. We know who we are. Obviously, it evolves with times. You know, we're not under center running wing T like some people may have been when they were, you know, earlier in their coaching careers. There's a time and place for that. Um, but yeah, we, we know what we're looking for and we recruit to that. Yeah. So then my follow-up to, to that, as far as the, the observation and you, know, you don't lead with the offer, take coronavirus for instance, right? Okay. Yeah. So uh, this will all make sense in a second. People talk about long-term you know, issues or long-term this or long-term that, but we're still gathering data, right? So we're still trying to figure out what it is that we're talking about here, right? Because it's, it's evolving. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Colorado gets a new strain of it. Okay, what does that mean? You really are just constantly gathering that information and having to process it, right? And the same is true for the recruiting process where, you know, that first conversation, you're not going to know the kid. You, you're going to know a little bit more about him, but you're not going to know him. So it maybe gets you from 0% to 20%. And then talking to the head coach gets you from 20% to 40%. And then, you know, as you kind of have more interactions with the kid, you get to know more about him. But you're almost to the point where you'll never be 100%. You're never going to have the full data. Um, you're never going to know everything there is to know about the player. And certain players will have more information than others, right? Where maybe a coach is more accessible, maybe his position coach is more accessible or uh, the parents are more adept to get on the phone. Uh, different aspects will change. Like it, it'll be like 60, 40 or, you know, I 70, 60, but all the time you're constantly dealing with imperfect data mm-hmm. and, and incomplete data sets and you got to make decisions. How do you, like, what's your go-to kind of reaction when you've got two prospects and you know, a lot about one guy and you know a good amount about another player but not as much as the first guy and you know the player that you know more about you know more of his warts you know more of his you know his weaknesses or his you know issues or things that he needs to develop development with and the other player that you don't know as much about you're you're fired up about but at the end of the day you have to make a decision for your program and for your culture Yeah, that's a great question. Like you indicated, you're not always going to have perfect information on a prospect, just like we're not going to have perfect information about coronavirus. I think sometimes people are just frozen when it comes to decision-making. They fear making the wrong decision instead of making the mostly right decision now and then leaving the door open to adjust. And so, you know, when it comes to offering kids, I don't want to say that pulling an offer from someone is an adjustment because you and I have talked about that before. You know, our word is our bond. You know, we offered five 2021 tight ends. That's very uncommon. Um, Typically, the number is is much higher in our league. Um, That comes back to knowing what you're looking for and uh, going about things the right way, so um, so to speak. Um, but as far as trying to make a decision based off of imper- imperfect data, one, you have to accept that you don't have all of the answers. There are people in the relationship 
that can help provide some color and some context. You know, we recognize that when we recruit, we rely very, very heavily on the high school head coach, probably more so than a lot of other programs who may go directly through Twitter DMs to gain more information on a kid. Um, we have two tight ends that we signed in the 2021 class, both of whom came highly recommended from their high school coach. And that's just at my position, but that's very common in the COVID era, us not being able to see prospects, you have to trust the boots that are on the ground. And so we have great relationships in the state of Ohio and in, you know, major high schools in other major recruiting territories. And so we trust the evaluation of head coaches who have sent us quality young men before um, and also high school head coaches that our position coaches have known for, for a decade plus. And so whether that's, you know, a seven on seven coach or, you know, a, a family member of the young man or they're the younger brother or the cousin of somebody that's come through your program um, or especially the high school coach, I think you need to rely more heavily on the people that truly know the prospect um, because while you might be at 60 or 70% knowledge, it's probably a good chance that the high school coach is above that percentage. Um, yeah. They probably have 90% awareness of what that person's all about. They've known them since they were an eighth grader and then they played on the freshman team and then they played on the JV team and they know how they responded to injury and how they act on fourth down and whether they come to the weight room when it's voluntary. And if they're going to, you know, stick their neck out for a kid and they're going to say, coach, you know, he's a great player, but he's an even better person. He's a great leader. He was voted a captain as a junior. That's incredibly rare at our high school. You know, this is a can't miss guy. Well, then you, you have to take that person's word for it. Um, you know, there are high school coaches that tend to promote their players maybe in a way that, um, you know, isn't 100% truthful um, or, or over promote their guys and say, Hey, he's six, five. And when he gets to campus, you know, for a junior day, he's six, two and a half. Um, we take that into account. You know, we know who those people are. We, we know who our trusted advisors are and who they're not. Um, and so when it comes to making decisions based off of imperfect information or knowing more warts about one kid or another kid, you know, I may know more warts about one kid or another kid, so to speak, but maybe there are people in my life and in that prospect's life who may be able to shed more light on the situation. And I don't, everybody listening, I hope you took some notes on like the different types of traits and, and questions that he's presenting to these high school coaches. Cause they're all really important. Like on a voluntary workout day, where is he at? You know, how does he lead? How does he interact with his teammates? What is he like in the hallway? you got to get really, really concrete about, okay, what exactly does that look like? So when it comes to the, the anecdotal side of it and really trying to put the color into the, the scouting report for these players, what's, what's the go-to like most important question? You got one question to ask a coach about a player. What's that question? Well, just like a lot of things that I've, I haven't created myself. I've stolen it from other people who are much smarter than me. Um, but Urban Meyer talks about competitive excellence. And so he, he talks about when he's recruiting a prospect, the competitive excellence, the drive, how does that show up? It's 
on fourth down. It's in critical situations. It's when the play breaks down. It's in the game against the rival, you know, in the highest levels of competition, in, in the toughest arenas of competition. What is this person's character? Um, you know, and then it's my job as a coach to make, make things competitive in a way that, you know, helps build the people up once they're on campus. Um, but if it, you know, if you ask a coach, is he competitive? The answer is going to be yes. You know, if you ask a coach, is he tough? Does he work hard? The answer is going to be yes. You need information that's going to indicate to what extent they are tough. You know, and I put that in quotations or to what extent they are competitive coach. He's always the first person in line. He's always telling the younger players what to do. And when it comes to organizing our voluntary seven on seven during the summer, he's the one that starts the text chain and he gets every single guy there. And, you know, he even picked up so-and-so who was a sophomore that, you know, might even start over him and brought him, you know, to the field. Okay. That, that shows how competitive this person is. Um, you know, Oh, it's when it's fourth down coach, you know, we're, we're going to run the ball behind him. He, you know, because he is tough because he is competitive. Okay. Well then that provides some color. So I want to know how competitive a person is because I'm competitive as coach. I want to win. I want to put our guys in a position to be successful. Um, and all the traits of, he's tall and he's long and he's fast. Those are great. But what are you going to do with those gifts when it means something between the white lines? And it's my job as a recruiter to try to ask the right questions, um, try to make the right observations to discover that. First off, thank you for, for making time out of your, your last week of freedom. Uh, I know your wife's glad that you went to the office to get out of her, her homework space. You talked about beginning with the end in mind when it comes to approaching the convention. The same can be said about the evaluating process. And, you know, off air, we were both talking about, you know, kind of what we've been doing as far as, okay, what wins in our conference. And I know that's something that you've taken a lot of pride in as far as kind of building a player profile at tight end. I'd love for you to talk about your mindset and your approach to putting that profile together but also talk to the emergency quarterback mindset that you have to have at tight end. Two great points. Um, you know, first off, as far as creating the prototype, you know, I listen to a lot of NFL podcasts inspired by Bill Belichick when he was um, with the Browns, I guess prior to that it was Parcells with the Cowboys where they created the player profile by position. What are they asking their players to do? Um, and what is, what does that look like? What are the skills, traits, physical measurables that are needed to have success at that position? And so in approaching this opportunity at Ohio, I wanted to gain a greater understanding of the types of players that have had success both at Ohio and in the MAC, um, who are the high achievers and what do their measurables look like? Um, and so I created a spreadsheet. It's fairly easy to go back and find, you know, who, what tight ends have been drafted from, from Ohio um, and from the other Mac schools, what players have been all Mac um, at each position over the last several years. And so I went back a number of years and created an Excel spreadsheet by position to find out, okay, if you want to be first team all Mac in this conference at tight end, well, what does that look like? 
And obviously it's my job as a recruiter to project out, um, but it's, it's fairly specific. Um, there isn't a lot of variation in height, speed, weight. Now, players come in all shapes and sizes, but the average tells you that you're going to be 6'4", 250 pounds. You're going to run a 4'7", and you're going to bench 225 27 times. You know, those would be senior year, you know, pro day combine numbers. And so then it's my job to extrapolate out. You know, I think a lot of times as recruiters, we think, okay, in order to have success, this player needs to have a rocket arm. They need to be six, four, they need to be this fast. When in reality, it's not necessarily this, you know, Herculean image or, you know, whatever it's, it's, oh, okay. In order to be a first team, all conference receiver in the Mac, you're really not going to be six, four, two You're going to be six foot one ninety. Okay. Well then that helps us better understand the types of players that have had success and then marrying that with what we do. And so I also went through and, you know, our tight ends talk about being the emergency quarterback, having an understanding of where everybody lines up and what everybody does. We use our tight ends like chess pieces. Okay. We want to be a matchup issue. We want to flex outside and if it's man, are they going to bring a, a linebacker over there or bring a safety down? We're going to be in two tight ends. Are they going to stay in nickel or are they going to go um, to base personnel? Okay. But what if we're in 12 personnel in a 10 personnel look? Okay. What's their answer? So anyway, we're asking our tight ends to do a lot to have a full comprehension of the offense. Okay. But when it all comes, you know, when it comes down to it, there may be only 15 things that we're asking our guys to do 70% of the time. Okay, so they might have 100 assignments that they've got to know during a season. But really, there's only 15 that make up the vast majority of it. And so I wanted to understand, beginning with the end in mind, what are we actually asking our guy to do on the field? And then from an evaluation perspective, looking and saying, is this prospect capable of doing these you know, 15 tasks, these 15 skills really well? Okay, we ask our guys to do a lot. We ask them to run verticals and run fades and, you know, block down on a five technique. But really, the majority of the time, we ask them to do split zone, catch the ball underneath and make plays, you know, after the catch. So I need to evaluate those skills and say, yeah, it's great that he's capable of doing X, Y or Z, but he needs to be able to indicate that he can do what we do. And obviously, having continuity as a staff, having continuity as a head coach and coordinators, that helps us. Continuity is king. You know, we had, we've evolved our offense, but we're still going to run inside zone and option and take shots downfield and play action. Okay, so can the tight end do that? And so it's important to know, not just building from the beginning and saying, hey, I want a guy that's tall. I want a guy that's fast. I want a guy that's strong. It's really this is what guys who have had success both here and in the conference look like. And then what does having success mean? Well, it means being good at what we're asking them to do in our offense. And those key things are X, Y, and Z by position. It's uh, not losing the forest for the trees. That's right. Where can our listeners find and follow you on social media? Well, I would encourage them to follow Ohio football. 
So that's at Ohio football on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter at coach Brian Metz. And then if they want to reach out to me um, more personally, my email is metzb at ohio.edu. Brian, it's a lot of fun. Thank you again. And uh, best of luck heading into the off season. Thank you so much. I look forward to listening to your future episodes. Oh yeah. Talk to you soon, buddy.